0: People say that i threw my brain away that i'm a logical and don't have much to Thank you again for joining the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella. On this episode, I'm going to be responding to an objection given to us Calvinists about some uh, aspects of our reformed soteriology. Uh, if you appreciate this content or any other content uh, that is produced here on the YouTube channel, please consider becoming a sponsor. You can click on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog, or you can uh, find us on Patreon. As always, uh, if you like the apologetics uh, content of this uh, podcast, please find us on YouTube as well. You can subscribe there and share, share, share. We'd like to get this material out to as many people as as possible. So in this episode, I want to go um, back into an objection that I've answered previously, uh, and that's an objection posed against Calvinism by some outside of Reform circles, particularly by two strange bedfellows in Lutheranism and Provisionism. And that is the charge that given Calvinism, one could not know that they are saved since one could not know if they are one of God's elect. I'm hereafter going to call this the certainty objection. Now, I've responded numerous times to this accusation previously, but I'd like to draw out my main response more expressly to it. Let's just call this the weirdness defeater. (laughs) That is, the objection is just weird. Not that it's spooky or unusual, but rather, I just don't understand why people think it's a meaningful objection or that their view is somehow exempt from it on their own. So it would just, it's just weird that they should use this objection. Now, in this episode, I'm going to be giving the positive case, or sorry, I'm not going to really be giving the positive case for why the Calvinists can have assurance that we're saved in Christ, Um, but rather I'm going to be giving a defeater for the argument uh, in and of itself. Now, for uh, my previous answers on assurance under Calvinism, you can see other responses on the blog or Uh, some different comments uh, and threads or or ops in different various groups. Um, But I am going to, while it's not going to be the focus of this episode, I will at the very end give a short section um, that that I think is how a Calvinist could answer it with not some of the ways that uh, some non-Calvinists think we do. Okay, so the weirdness defeater can be expressed in three different ways. First, the objection seems to think that Christians ought to have Cartesian certainty in our own salvation. Second, it focuses the object of our belief on the wrong object, rather, or sorry, namely our status rather than on Christ. And thirdly, finally, that no soteriological view seems exempt from from the objection so it just proves more than i think the objector thinks that it does if it's true as such this kind of strange uh, objection really is kind of a soteriological solipsism so let me state the certainty objection and then look at these uh, three versions of the weirdness to feeder okay uh, Here, I'm going to present what I think is a steel man version of it, since many times that the objection, the certainty objection is stated, there's just numerous unchecked assumptions that the Calvinists wouldn't agree to from the get-go, so it doesn't really ever get off the ground for for discussion, so I'm going to try to give a steel man version of it that gets some, some of that clutter out of the way, so that way we can actually talk about the objection itself. The objection is put in some form as follows. Given Calvinism, election unto salvation is is part of God's eternal decree. God also decrees or determines all things so that even many of those who believe and yet apostatize were predestined to do so. Many may even die in a state of false belief, whereby they believe that they are one of the elect when they're not, and as such, God would have determined them to to die in a state of such false belief. Given these conditions, how then can a Calvinist know that they really are one of God's elect and saved by God's decree? Okay, the certainty objection essentially moves from the opacity of the determining decree of God, even over false belief, to our inability to know if we ourselves have false belief. It's important to note that the purpose of this objection is typically not merely to reject Calvinism, but specifically to reject Calvinism's understanding of the atonement being only effectual for the elect. Now, that may sound strange because the objection ostensibly seems to be about uh, unconditional election, but really it's not. That is, While it's not a negative objection, it is often, though not always, used in an attempt to say that universal atonement has certain theological virtues that limited atonement does not have. And it tries to make this claim via attacking unconditional election to undermine our assurance that the atonement, if limited to the elect, really is for us, for me. Right, so it attacks uh, limited atonement via a route of attacking unconditional election. Now, that's not in, in principle a bad move. I mean, I've argued elsewhere that Calvinism is like Russian nesting dolls—if you can, they're they're inextricably linked to each other. So it's not surprising then that to attack one, they go through the route of another. That's not actually uh, a bad polemical strategy. So the context where I find this objection cropping up the most is in a challenge that the Calvinists cannot quote-unquote present the gospel because we cannot tell quote-unquote every single person that Christ died for you. And as such, so they say, I therefore cannot know that Christ died for me. right? So on the face of it, this objection poses a strong challenge. And to be frank, many Calvinists have given really poor answers to it, such as, just bald or crass appeals to personal sincerity as the sole grounding of our certainty. And as I stated above, I've already given what I think is a strong warranted case for confident assurance under Calvinism, and I'm going to be presenting a little bit of that at the end. So here I'm mostly just providing criticisms or rejoinders or defeaters to the objection itself. So let us now turn to those criticisms, which all fall under my weirdness defeater. First, the objection seems weird because it tries to push one to have a kind of Cartesian certainty, that is, a kind of unassailable or unimpeachable confidence in one's belief that no percentage of doubt or uncertainty can be permitted to the party. Here, I'm simply going to admit that if one expects that the Calvinist has to have a kind of absolute Cartesian certainty that they're saved, or else you know, their position is false or whatever, then the objection is just uh, invalid. It is true (laughs) that I don't have that kind of certainty, but what follows from that in the objection just doesn't logically follow. It's a non sequitur. So I would simply push back and say that anyone who claims to have that kind of certainty is either not being honest with us, or not being honest with themselves, or some combination of the two. Here we can explore what the Bible does exhort us to, that is, faith and assurance. While we're told that we can know things, for example, Jesus is the Christ, that he gives us eternal life, and that we have peace with God through him, such as in Colossians 2.2, Hebrews 10.22, and 1 John 5.13, it's not clear that something like the philosophical concept of Cartesian certainty is in view here when it talks about knowledge, but probably more something like what we're exhorted to, which is, uh, what, we're, what we're often exhorted to, which is uh, understanding, confidence, and assurance, such as in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, Ephesians three twelve, Colossians 2, 2 again, Hebrews 6, 11, and 11, 1. As we'll see shortly, no position gets us to anything like Cartesian certainty, but that's not really a bad thing. So the initial weirdness defeater is simply the denial that I need a view or that it's nece- a necessary virtue of a true view that it will muster in me absolute certainty in the Cartesian sense about the view which I affirm. Okay, the second aspect of the weirdness defeater is that our assurance as Christians is not and should never be rooted in in our theological system that is I don't have assurance in Calvinism and a Lutheran shouldn't have assurance in Lutheranism and a provisionist shouldn't have their assurance in provisionism our views if we're being intellectually honest could be false we could be interpreting it incorrectly and someone else could be interpreting the, the, the text correctly Rather, our assurance is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and him crucified and and raised. So the objection is weird because it seeks to say that a Calvinist cannot have Cartesian certainty because we cannot be certain that we are elect under our view of election. At that point, I would simply say that no one should place their assurance on their doctrine of election, and yes, we all have views of election, and that should be the case even if Calvinism is true. That simply is the wrong area to look for the foundation of our assurance and our confidence. So, the entire objection is built around our our ability or inability to have absolute Cartesian certainty in our own theological systems. At that point, I once again simply reject the starting assumption of the objection. So thirdly, and this is the more robust criticism, the objection seems to cut against the grain of all theological systems, all soteriological views, precisely because no view can ground the Cartesian certainty that's demanded in the certainty objection. We can see this by understanding that there's an equivocation which props up the objection. For we can ask of it, what does it mean to know that one is, quote unquote, saved? This will have implications for the next two forms of the objection. But, but here, consider just what one means by the term. Does saved mean election? Does it mean that I'm presently justified? Does it mean that one day or, or that one is cert- will certainly attain heaven and their inter- inheritance laid up for them there? Does it simply mean that Christ died and forgave their, uh, us our sin? Here, the term saved just isn't clear. And in the Bible, salvation and its cognates very often function in the same way as a category term rather than as a specific concept. This is what's called a syndectici, where one term stands in as the label or supercategory to describe an entire process or cluster of concepts. So what does the objection mean when it's asked, can you know that you're saved? Well, first, it cannot be to know that one is elect. Even on Calvinism, election is the eternal decree of God to save a person. It's not identical to salvation, but rather is the decree of God to save God's people to himself. So it cannot be that, or it simply would be a straw man of Calvinism. So let's, let's be gracious and, and charitable and assume that the objection isn't a straw man like that. But what then about the other concepts of salvation? Well, remember that on Lutheran and many provisionist views, Christians who are regenerated, justified, granted eternal life, indwelt by the Spirit, et cetera, can, by the power of their own natural will, reharden themselves and reject Christ and his sacrifice and ultimately be lost. So what does it mean to know that one is saved on those systems? What does it mean to say that I know in this moment that I'm saved under those systems? Can they have certainty that they will certainly attain heaven and their inheritance? Well, no. They may undergo a tragedy tomorrow and reject God as many have, so that cannot be it. And, and uh, you know, the provi- some provisionists might say, oh, well, we believe in eternal security. Okay, great. So does that mean that someone who did believe... Can apostatize and lose their salvation? Well, the person who says eternal security is going to say no. Well, then you have the same problem as some Calvinists do, where you're going to say, okay, well, what does that mean? And most provisionists are going to say, well, that person wasn't actually justified; they were simply falsely, uh, they they simply had a false faith and proved the uh, their their proved, proved their nature by their apostasy. So they're in the exact same place with that answer. So uh, that that just can't be it. So can they have certainty then that they're presently justified? Well, this poses a problem differently on the various systems by, by, by given both views that they could not be certain of it since for both, justification is a declarative act of God that they didn't bear witness to. How do they have certainty that God has done so or that their faith is not like the faith of the Pharisees and the false prophets? How do they know that? Do they have Cartesian certainty? Well, no, they have to go on some type of assurance or confidence or something like that. But then again, we're back to the original problem with the objection. Or of those, how do they know they don't have the faith of the Hebrews that the Hebrew speaks of in Hebrews 6 and 10? So really what this comes down to is their desire to uphold a universal view of the atonement, that all people were forgiven by the atonement. And so therefore they want to say we can know because the atonement was universal. Well, here, I'm not going to expose the numerous problems, theological problems and doctrinal problems and biblical problems and logical problems of that view, but rather notice then that this would be something that's true of all people, including those people presently suffering God's wrath awaiting judgment and those who will spend an eternity in hell, So if a universal atonement view is true, whereby all sin of all people was forgiven by the atonement, that is what Lutherans call objective atonement, then this cannot be the basis for one's assurance of their own salvation because it would be true of all people whether or not they are in heaven or in hell, let alone some manner of Cartesian certainty because that would be the same fact, again, for all people without exception. And yet we know by God's own revelation that most of humanity will not be saved. So the simple conviction of the universal atonement cannot be the grounding for our absolute certainty or even knowledge that we are are saved ourselves, because that would be a fact of people who are in hell. (laughs) Here, the Lutheran and the Provisionists will need some other grounding for them to know that they are saved, Now, the Lutheran will want to go to the means of grace, which I appreciate, because they do not want to have to appeal to anything that they do, because then they say, oh, well, you're appealing to yourselves, or that it's subjective to themselves to ground their uh, their assurance. However, here, they gloss over their own distinction between objective atonement, where Christ forgives all the sins of all people without exception, and subjective atonement, where the benefits of that are applied to those who, guess what, who personally, subjectively repent and believe. But notice that since it cannot possibly be the objective atonement, which grounds their their certainty and their assurance, since it would be equally true of all those who were in hell that they were objectively atoned for, they must appeal to subjective atonement. However, a necessary condition of subjective atonement just is personal repentance and faith, something that they do and even they believe that they have to do with sincerity. So a simple appeal to the crucifixion will not suffice on their view since it's accomplished the same objective atonement for all people without exception, whether they're in heaven or in hell. They must appeal at the end of the day to some manner of subjectivity in the subjective atonement. But the moment they do that, They are now necessarily, again, appealing to subjective personal actions and have left the realm of objectivity and Cartesian certainty into the realm that they want to deny the Calvinist. So they're in the same boat. So here, the Lutheran is no better off than the Calvinist. Here, I think the Lutheran and the Calvinist would both ground it in the crucifixion, and we would both look to the means of grace as conveying objective grounds of assurance. But ultimately, on their view, these are only salvifically applied to those who believe. After all, that's the promise, is it not? John 6, uh, 3.16 tells us that it's for that all whom believe shall have everlasting life. So why can't we appeal to the fact that we are presently believing as evidence that we are saved, right? But they don't want to allow the Calvinist to appeal to something subjective. So why do they get to appeal to something subjective? But then, so therefore they have to grant the same move to the Calvinist. In addition, we can both equally appeal to the inner witness of the Holy Spirit per Romans 8.16 as an immediate assurance from God, but that would not be an exclusive benefit to any single view again. Provisionism and, on, and other non-Augustinian views, on the other hand, have an even harder problem, since they do not typically believe in means of grace as conveying real grace in a mediated way to the believer. Rather, their sole grounding seems to be the work of Christ, just like the rest of us, which means it's not unique to their view, mediated to us by our own sincere faith, and that's all they have. So they must then ground their certainty and their assurance on their own sincerity. But how do they know that they're really sincere or that they'll remain sincere forever or that they're sincere enough or that they were sincere enough this morning but they're not now or vice versa? Can they have Cartesian certainty of that? Of course not. So now we're back to out of the realm of, uh, of, of absolute, censor, uh, um, censor, uh, absolute Cartesian certainty and into the realm of Im- assurance. But once you do that, all of us are on the same playing field. So here, the objection, while while I worded it in such a way as to seem like, well while, while it's worded in such a way as to seem like it's a substantive objection against Calvinism only, turns up to just be another paper protest. It either demands too much in the way of Cartesian certainty and thus defeats all soteriological views in its attempt to burn down Calvinism, or else it just doesn't prove anything at all since all views would essentially be the same position and their own universal atonement view simply adds no value to their answer. So how then would a Calvinist ground our assurance? Couldn't God determine us to have false beliefs? Couldn't I be wrong in thinking I'm elect since I cannot have Cartesian certainty? Well, I can have reasonable assurance by looking to God, his promise and covenant-keeping nature, his glory in the finished work of Christ that is impressed to our souls by word and sacrament, by the testimony of other believers of the fruit of the Spirit in my life, and the ministry in the church, and immediately by the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. We can continue to work out our salvation uh, and the assurance thereof with fear and trembling, but we know that God has said that those who love him, love his word, love his body, love their neighbors, mortify the flesh, grow in prayer, display the fruits of the spirit more as they mature, and uh, long for deeper fellowship with God, that those really are influences and boosts and boons to our assurance. So the Calvinist can give reasons, ones told to us and supplied to us by scripture, I can, might I add, that bolster our assurance that we are in Christ, that we are his sheep and truly hear his voice and come when he calls. Without some kind of defeater for the faithfulness of God or the work of the Spirit in my life and the promises that accompany them to all who believe, I just have no reason to doubt my inclusion in the people of God. Simply asking, yeah, but how do you know that 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 you know just isn't an objection. It's posturing. Look to Christ and his life, death, burial, and resurrection, to Christ in him crucified, which actually accomplished salvation for his people and didn't just make salvation possible with the magic ingredient of our personal faith, and to the promises of God for his people that accompany them to all who believe and are called according to his purpose. And you will have assurance because God cannot lie, and God is the one that accomplishes salvation from beginning to end. We trust in God because of what he has done and what he has promised to us. If the gospel is just equated with the universal atonement so that the promises are true of all people without exception, so that I can say to everybody in the room, Christ died and forgave your sins and not merely offered to all whom believe without distinction, then that's just not a unique promise to anyone who does. Believe, And so, therefore, it cannot ground the assurance that we have in Christ that he accomplished what we could not. Now, let me wrap up here by presenting a quick survey of the way that various Reformed confessions have answered this question in the past, since many non-Calvinists seem to think that the only way Calvinists ever answer this is by saying, you're strawmanning us, or, well, if someone leaves, then they were never saved to begin with, or something like that, which... Really, neither of those answer the objection. Anyone familiar with Reformed soteriology and the long tradition of Reformed theology knows that we have given and, and we have provided an answer to this question for centuries. So what's the ground of assurance? The Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 18, quote, this certainty is not a bare conjectural or probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidences of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirit that we are children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption." Similarly, the Belgic Confession says in Article 24, So we would always be in debt, tossed back and forth without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be tormented constantly if they did not rest on the merit of the suffering and death of our Savior. And the Canons of Dort say in Articles 12 and 13 of Section 1, Assurance of their eternal and unchangeable election to salvation is given to the chosen in due time. Through uh, though by various stages and in differing measure. Sh- such assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God, but by noticing within themselves, with spiritual joy and holy delight, the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's word, such as the true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. In their awareness and assurance of this election, God's children daily find greater cause to humble themselves before God, to adore the fathomless depth of God's mercies, to cleanse themselves, and to give fervent love in return to the one who first so greatly loved them. This is far from saying that this teaching concerning election and reflection upon it make God's children lax in observing his commandments or carnally self-assured. By God's just judgment, this does not usually happen to those who ca- uh, causally take, sorry, casually take for granted the grace of election or engage in idle and brazen talk about it, but are un- unwilling to walk in the ways of the chosen, End quote. So we see several sources of assurance. Again, Westminster puts uh, Uh, points to, quote, the divine truth of the promises of salvation, end quote. And the Belgic Confession specifies, quote, the merit of the suffering and death of our Savior, end quote, upon which those promises rest. The Westminster cites these scriptures for support. It cites Hebrews 6.17, which says, "In in the same way God wanted to demonstrate more clearly to the heirs of the promise that his purpose was unchangeable, and so he intervened with an oath so that uh, we who have found refuge in him may find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us through two unchangeable things, since it is impossible for God to lie. We have this hope as an anchor to the soul, sure and steadfast, which reaches inside behind the curtain, End quote. Westminster continues, quote, The inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, end quote, specified by the canons of Dort as, quote, A true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on, end quote. And Westminster cites passages such as 2 Peter 1.4 and following, which is, Through these things he has bestowed on us, His precious and most magnificent promises, so that by means of what was promised, you may become partakers of the divine nature after escaping the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith excellence, to excellence knowledge. And following in verse ten, therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to be sure of your calling and election, for by doing this you will never stumble into sin, for thus an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be will richly will be richly provided for you. End quote. They cite 1 John 2, 3, which is, Now by this we know that we have come to know God, if we keep his commandments. They cite 1 John three fourteen, which reads, We know that we have crossed over from death to life because, this is the causal for how we know, because we love our fellow Christians. The one who does not have love remains in death. They, they cite 2 Corinthians 1 12 for our reason for for our reason for confidence is this this is the grounding for our reason and confidence the testimony of our conscience that with pure motives and sincerity which are from God not by human wisdom but by the grace of God we conducted ourselves in the world and all the more towards you End quote. The Westminster wraps it up with, quote, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirit that we are the children of God, end quote, referring to Romans 8, 15 to 16, which says, quote, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of adoption, citing other virtues such as Ephesians 1:13, which says, and when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked out with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And Ephesians 4.30, which says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the indwelling of the spirit is part of the foundations of our assurance. 2 Corinthians 1.21 says, But it is God who establishes us together with you in Christ and who anointed us, who has sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. And how do we distinguish now from true assurance and false assurance according to the Reformed tradition? Well, the canons of Dort say that it is by God's just judgment that some who casually take for granted the grace of election or engage in idle and brazen talk about it but are unwilling to walk in the ways of the chosen become carnally self-assured rather than having actual assurance of faith. So how can, uh, in quote-unquote, infallible assurance, which is the language of the Westminster Confession, and this carnal, quote-unquote, carnal self-assurance, which is the, la- uh, the language of the Canons of Dort, how can they be distinguished? Well, in addition, so A. A. Hodge commentary on the Westminster Confession takes a stab at answering that. He writes, quote, "...true assurance, however, may be distinguished from that which is false by the following tests." True assurance begets unfeigned humility. False assurance begets spiritual pride, 1 Corinthians 15.10 and Galatians 6.14. True, the true leads to an increased diligence in the practice of holiness. The false leads to sloth and self-indulgence, such as Psalm 51, 12-13 and 19. The true leads to candid self-examination and to a desire to be searched and corrected by God. The false leads to a disposition to be satisfied with appearance and to avoid accurate investigation in Psalm one hundred thirty nine twenty three to twenty four. The true leads to constant aspirations after more intimate fellowship with God, first John three, two through three. quote. It is common for Calvinists also to cite 1 John 2:19 in the case of those who either were falsely accused or who deceived, or, or deceived uh, uh, others knowingly or not, into believing that they were saved, which states quote, "They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us because if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. but they went out from us to demonstrate that all of them do not belong to us end quote. So while this is not a total answer to the certainty objection, it does bolter that, honestly, if I haven't apostatized, and if I'm observing the fruit, and if I have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, and if I'm receiving the grace given to me in the means of grace, then I just have no good reason to think that I'm apostate. And I have every good reason, I have every foundation for true warrant, valid warrant, that I'm saved in Jesus Christ. And this certainty objection just doesn't even scratch the surface of that. All right. Well, thank you again for listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to reach out and email me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Or, and what's best, come on by the group page on Facebook at The Freed Thinker. Again, thank you so much for joining. Good night, and